0: Well, how fitting on this Veterans Day weekend that some of our own have returned from Kuwait. I'm thinking of Michael Freitag and Michael George who are back home with their families and we rejoice with them. It's so good of God to bring them back safe. And I know that Nathan Dewey, yeah, we can do that. Nathan Dewey. Uh, Randy and Chris Olson's son-in-law, he came home this week as well, and so we're thanking the Lord. And, and I just want to pray for those who are still over there serving and thanking God for those who gave their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy every day. Let's pray, Lord, how good of you to bring these men back to their families, and we rejoice with them. And we think of those who are in constant danger, uh, in harm's way every day, over in Iraq and many other places in the world. And we ask that the very present dangers would make them mindful of their need for you, that they'd know that you are a rock and a refuge and a shelter in a time of trouble. And we thank you, Lord, for the many who gave the ultimate sacrifice of their own life so that we can, even today, just freely gather here to praise your name. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. I've been telling you a little bit about my, um, my parents who both hail from Switzerland, and my dad's little village was about 900 strong, and it's been that way, I think, for the last hundred years. And one of the places that I loved to visit as a boy in Valais, Switzerland, was the Voie Romane. and the Voie Romane is the Roman road. Can you believe it? There in the forests in this little village nestled right along the Swiss-French border, there was a section of the Roman road. And it was awesome. It wasn't very wide, but what was awesome about it were the deep ruts that were made over the centuries of these chariots going down the road. And That's not a picture of it in my dad's town. I couldn't find one, but those ruts remind me of the Roman road. And you, you think of that phrase, don't you, up there on top? All roads lead to Rome, right? And it was the... the the road system, some 53,000 miles of roads that went all over the Roman Empire. And, and you look at it today and you go, wow, it covered a lot, a lot of ground, 53,000 miles in its heyday. And it was in this time that the Romans ruled the world that God sent his son. In fact, Galatians 4 4 puts it this way But when the right time came, God sent his son. And it was the right time. It was the right time for God to send Jesus into this world because the Romans had unified the whole world and had developed this great Roman road that would make it ideal for the good news of God's love in Christ to go out to the ends of the earth, God's plan from the very beginning. And so last week we were in the Gospels Jesus is here. This week we go to the book of Acts. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. It's the history book of the New Testament. Written by Luke, Dr. Luke, the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He's also the author of the gospel by his name, Luke. Now, there's two purposes that are explicitly stated in the gospels. The first comes from John 20, 31. And the first purpose of the good news, the gospels, is to produce faith and to give new life in Christ. So John writes at the end of his gospel, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The gospels were written that we might believe, and in believing find new life in Christ. Luke writes at the beginning of his gospel, about how it promotes certainty of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so he writes in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, "...therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught." You've been taught about Jesus. I want you to be sure about what you've been taught. And so the Gospels make it clear that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. The Gospels make it clear not only who he is, but what he came to do. He came preaching, and he came teaching. He came working miracles, but he came to die. And he died as a ransom for sin to free us, and he rose from the dead. And the Gospels remind us that Christ's life and his message demands a response. You just can't brush them aside. You've got to deal with Christ. Now, I was reminded of that this week in Time Magazine. I don't know if you get this or have seen this, but this week, the cover of Time is God versus Science. And it's this debate between Richard Dawkins, an atheist, a guy who teaches at Oxford University. He's recently written a book, The God Delusion. Kind of tells you where he's at. And then Francis Collins, a Christian geneticist. And at the end of the article, they quote from Dawkins, who says this. When we started out, we were talking about the origins of the universe and the physical constants. I provided what I thought were cogent arguments against a supernatural intelligent designer. Arguments against God. Then he goes on. But it does seem to be a worthy idea, refutable, but nevertheless grand and big enough to be worthy of respect. I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of that grandeur. They strike me as parochial. If there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian or any religion has ever proposed. You you gotta deal with Jesus. And Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, says, really, there's only a a few options. In fact, if you're a serious seeker of Christianity and Jesus Christ, this is a book, along with the Bible, that you really need to work through. And if you've been a Christian for any time, you ought to read Mere Christianity, a great book, an important book. And here's what Lewis says in his book. Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing Lewis says we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So, Lewis says, when you respond to Christ, you're either going to come to these conclusions. He's a liar, a la Pinocchio. He is a lunatic, a la the man who takes himself, in our case, as two poached eggs. Or, you do what his followers did. You fall at his feet, and you call him Lord. And it was such a grand Lord that they had in Jesus Christ, the one who let them put their fingers through the nail prints on his hands, the sword wound in his side, the nail-pierced feet. It was such a grand master and grand Lord that they served that they were willing to give up their lives for him and take the word of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. The religious leaders said he's a hoax. It's a lie, this Jesus rising from the dead. And these men went out at the risk and the giving of their own lives saying, he's alive, he's a risen savior. And so from from the point when Matthew records Peter's great confession in chapter 16, verse 18, and Peter says to Jesus' question, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the promised Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said this, Peter, on this rock, on your confession, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. And the book of Acts then gives us the history of Christ building his church through his spirit-empowered witnesses, the disciples, who give us a great picture of what it looks like to be ordinary people who take God at his word and are serious with his word. And they go out, following his clear command and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to do all that Jesus commanded. And these are the men that the scriptures say, turn the world upside down. Turn it upside down. And so Acts gives us the history then. It's called Acts because it records the acts of the apostles. Or maybe better, the acts of what Jesus continued to do on this earth through his spirit-empowered apostles. And those two words, disciples and apostles, are good to just sort out. A disciple is a follower of Christ. An apostle is someone sent out, commissioned with the message. So, the followers of Christ now become his apostles as they're sent out with the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, let's turn in our Bibles into Acts chapter 1 and read the opening account, page 770 in the Bibles in front of you. Again, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Luke writes In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth and that last verse Acts 1 8 is really the key verse for the whole book my witnesses they're 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 worried about when are you when are you going to establish the kingdom it's kind of like people today that that spend hours and hours figuring out when is Christ going to come back and Jesus says to them and to us It's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. But here's what you do need to know. What you're to be about until that day happens. You're to be my witnesses. So this key verse becomes the verse that in a sense unfolds the whole book of Acts. It gives us the outline of Acts. So in Acts 1.8, we have Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's where these spirit-empowered witnesses are to go. So it begins in Jerusalem, Acts chapters 1 through 7, focus in on Jerusalem. And then in chapter 8, it goes out to Judea. Judea would be the similarity of Madison taking it out to Dane County. So they go to Judea. And then in Acts chapter 8, it not only goes out to Judea, but it goes out to Samaria. Samaria was up to the north. It was those hated half-breeds. This was as much a... um, It wasn't so much a geographical issue as it was. These are the hated half breeds, their brothers and sisters that intermarried with the Assyrians and all the other people that inhabited that place. They were so hated that when people were traveling north, they traveled around Samaria. And hence, Jesus encounter with the Samaritan woman in John's gospel is so key but the gospel goes out to Samaria as well in John chapter 8 and then in the back part of John chapter 8 it goes to the Ethiopian eunuch which reminds us that it goes out to the ends of the earth as we follow Paul from chapters 13 all the way to the end of the book chapter 28 and his three missionary journeys that's the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 8 gives us its structure And what we have here is like the Gospels dropped into Jerusalem like a rock into a still pond and then the ripples are going out. And so we read this repeated phrase time and again in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Then in chapter 8, on the heels of persecution... Stephen has just been stoned to death. There's now persecution breaking out against the Christians. And chapter 8, verse 4 tells us, those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The word spread even through persecution. Chapter 12, after Herod's death, the word of God continued to increase and spread. It's moving out. It's going out. Chapter 13, verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Asia Minor, Paul's refer, Luke's referring to in Paul's first missionary journey. Again in chapter 19. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And then finally at the end of the book, Paul says, therefore, I want you to know in chapter 28 that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. It's spread out. He's in Rome now to Rome and the Gentiles and they will Listen. And so they're giving testimony to Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection. And the word's going out and it's going out and it's going out. The book opens up in Jerusalem and it ends a couple thousand miles away in Rome. And it didn't just get there because there was a great Roman road. It got there because Jesus commissioned his followers with the command to go and make disciples he gave them his spirit and in the power of the spirit with great boldness in the face of a lot of terrifying opposition they went and they proclaimed the gospel and we're part of the story we're part of that story so what happens in chapter one they replaced judas and what are they looking for? They're looking for someone who'd been with Jesus from the beginning and someone who was an eyewitness of the resurrection. So enter Mattathias. So they've got the full contingent. They're waiting there in the upper room for the promised spirit, this spirit that ties back into the new covenant promise. God saying, I'm going to give you a new heart. So we read this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. I'll give you a new heart, and there it is, and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And so look over at chapter 2 then, and we see the great account of the giving of Christ's spirit to the followers of Jesus. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine, they're drunk. Well, here you have it, the giving of the Spirit. And now these spirit-filled messengers like Peter stand up, and from this point on in the book of Acts, they just start speaking the truth. And here's the consistent message that we get from the apostles. Their message starts off with Jesus. He's the promised Messiah. He's the promised Savior. They root His coming in the Old Testament scriptures. And then they talk about he died on the cross for their sins. They talked about he rose from the dead on the third day. They talked about the necessary response to repent, to turn away from sin and turn in faith to Christ. And so we have a beautiful example of their preaching right here in Acts chapter 2 when Peter gets up. And now remember, this is Peter who gets up in broad daylight in front of thousands proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. This is the same guy. You just rewind a little bit and you find him hiding out in the courtyard close to where Jesus was being tried on the wee hours of Thursday night, Friday morning before his crucifixion. He's warming his hands around a campfire and a young girl who's a slave. She's nobody in society. And she says, you're you're one of his followers, aren't you? And he denies him. He swears that he knows nothing about Jesus. It's the same guy in Acts chapter 2 who now has been restored by Jesus. He's been empowered and filled by the Spirit. And this guy is ready to preach. And preach he does. And he says, hey, we're not drunk. What's going on here today is what Joel the prophet prophesied back in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, when God said, I'm going to pour out my spirit and your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. That's what's happening here. These guys aren't drunk and he goes on to share the gospel. And when you get to the end of his message, you see these key components that we just saw. Look at verse 36 of chapter 2. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, Peter says. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord Lord, With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's amazing. They hear the message. Their hearts are cut to the quick. It reminds us that God's word is living. It's alive. It's active. It's sharper than that two-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12 says, and and it can separate and get to places like between joints and marrow and soul and spirit, and it can convict our hearts. And so they've heard the word, and they say, what are we going to do? And they take Peter's advice, and they turn from their old lives and they turn to Christ in faith and they're baptized and 3,000 people believe, And a church is born in Jerusalem made up of all the nations. And we want to make some observations here. And the first is this, that their coming to faith had everything to do with hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17 says. And the hearing that brings faith is the hearing of God's word. They hear the good news and God works in their hearts so that they believe it. So one of the things that's going to happen more and more in this place is people are going to be exposed to hearing God's word and they're going to say like they've been saying here, I get it. I, I, I get it now. I'm believing it. That's what happens when people hear God's word. God's spirit is always working in connection with his word. We make that observation. The second observation is this. You can't separate faith and repentance. You can't separate those two. So when someone places their faith in Christ, they're no longer trusting in the things they used to trust in. Or when someone turns away from their old way of life, they're turning to something. And in the Gospels, it's turning to Christ. And so faith and repentance are the two sides of the same coin as one responds to the Gospel. Third, and important here, baptism follows on the heels of their belief. And that's normative in the New Testament. If I said, how many of you are followers of Christ?" A lot of us would raise our hands this morning. And if I said, and how many of you have been baptized? A lot of us would go, whoops, not yet. In the New Testament, what was normative was when you profess faith in Christ, you were baptized. So in Acts chapter eight, classic case, you've got the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading Isaiah's scroll. He doesn't get it. So God sends him a preacher so he'll get it. And Philip sits down in the chariot with him and explains to him the way, and He believes. And now they're tooling down the road in the chariot and the Ethiopian eunuch sees a pond and he says, hey, Philip, what prevents me from being baptized? Well, Philip didn't say, well, friend, you know, the deal about baptism is we wanna see if this thing, your profession of faith is really, if it's really stuck. So you gotta wait like three years. The other thing is we wanna know if you can really spell the word in the Greek. So if you can spell baptizo, you know, maybe I'll do that. I mean, we we want to make sure you get some knowledge here. He didn't say that at all. He says, nothing prevents you. And he goes down and he baptizes him. So if you haven't been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the clear teaching in scripture, a command of our Lord is, you should be baptized. And so it's not too late to join those who are going to be baptized a week from Wednesday night, Thanksgiving Eve. I encourage you to talk to me afterwards, to call the office first thing tomorrow morning, get your name back at the information table. We want to give you an opportunity to be baptized. And what is baptism? It's not that which saves you. It's that which points to what God has already done. It's the external sign of the internal reality that Jesus Christ really has died for your sins. He's washed you clean, and you're identifying with his life and death and resurrection. It's the external sign of the internal reality. And what's clear in the New Testament is baptism follows immediately upon professions of faith. Fourth, this is really important here. The Holy Spirit is given when people repent and believe. There's two accounts in chapter 2 of the giving of the Holy Spirit. First, to his followers who are waiting. They don't have it yet. And then to the 3,000. After the Spirit has come, what is normative is not the first group who are followers of Christ and have to wait a period of time until, oh, I got it now. What's normative is now that the Spirit has come, has broken into human history in Acts chapter 2. What's normative is the 3,000 who, when they believe, are given the Holy Spirit. Now to be sure, you start reading through the book of Acts and you're going to find a couple exceptions. In chapter 8, there's an exception when the Samaritans believe and they don't receive the Holy Spirit. Well, it makes sense to us why it might be a good idea for some of the envoys, the religious leaders of the church, the apostles, to come up to Samaria and, and to be able to verify that indeed, these people have not only professed faith in Christ, but as they get there, they receive the Holy Spirit. Because in their minds... The notion of these half-breeds being part of God's kingdom was just wild. So there's some exceptions, like the Samaritans in chapter 8, like Saul in chapter 9, and like the people in Ephesus in chapter 19. But what you have consistently in Scripture is the teaching that Paul explicitly states in Ephesians 1.13. And he says this, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation now listen having believed this gospel you were marked in him with a seal the promised holy spirit when you believe paul says you're marked you're identified with the spirit of god in your own heart it comes concurrent with faith in christ but the scriptures go on and tell us we need to keep on constantly being filled with the spirit ephesians five eighteen but we note when the Spirit is given. And finally, we note that forgiveness comes to those who turn to God. And if you're a person who is racked with guilt, you don't know what to do with your guilt, this is the good news of the gospel, that when you turn and trust that Jesus died for your sins and all that you're feeling guilty about, you can know peace and you can have forgiveness. And these observations are all pointing to important New Testament patterns that need to continually guide how we do church here in Madison, how we do church here at Door Creek. So first of all, we note the pattern is the gospel spread, the gospel's planted by these spirit-empowered witnesses. That's us. And as the gospel goes out, people will respond. They'll repent and they'll believe and they'll be baptized. And as people come together in the New Testament and in the book of Acts, you see that these, ga- these Christians are now gathered together in what's called these churches. These gatherings of God's people. People who have been called out by God's grace and they worship together and they serve each other and they go out in witness to the world. And so the gospel spreads through their witness and the result is the cycle begins again. And the promise made back to everyone abraham in genesis 12 is being fulfilled you remember in star wars when they get to hyperspace and it goes Poosh, just like that well the book of acts is Poosh, just like that with the promise that god made to abraham abraham i'm going to bless you and through you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you and there are these little exceptions here and there Like Rahab the the prostitute lived back in Jericho. And there was Ruth the Moabitess. Little exceptions here and there. But then all of a sudden, Acts chapter 2, and moving forward, wow! Hyperspace, the gospel goes out. And this is the connection of this book in the whole story of the Bible. It gives us the story of God's blessings literally going to all the families of the world. All right, so what do we say as we kind of bring this home? The first thing I'd say is there's some of us here that are really bored with the Christian life. I mean, we are just bored. And I'd say, read through the book of Acts. It'll, it'll probably take you about two and a half, three hours this week. I, I challenge you to give up, give up an evening and read the book of Acts and ask yourself, do any of these people look like they're bored? And then ask, why not? Why aren't they bored? Why am I so bored in my Christian experience? Here's another thing we ought to do when we come to the book of Acts, as we ought to praise God. We ought to thank him that there' has been a succession of faithful witnesses from the apostles, Peter and Paul, and the others who started getting the word out, and they didn't have the Jonah complex that said, "Hey, man." We're Jews, we're part of God's chosen people and nobody else ought to get in on this good stuff. We're keeping it to ourselves. So grateful that they went out and crossed all the boundaries that they did at the risk and even giving up their own lives and that the succession continued to the very person who introduced you to Jesus Christ. It all connects back to these faithful witnesses. We praise God for them and the other thing we need to do when we come to the book of Acts is say wow we got to get on with it and Christ hasn't come back yet the great commission still in effect we need to spread the word this gospel that trans, transcends culture cr- transcends race transcends economic and social barriers this gospel it's for everyone Jew and Gentile male and female rich and poor young and old for the murderer Paul And for the righteous or self-righteous. It's for everyone. And we've got a job to do. We've got to spread the word. We've got to get out the word and realize if we're committed to doing that, we may face some tough times, just like they did. And the mark of a true follow of Christ is even the face of tough times, we're faithful with the deposit that we've been given. Spread the word. And finally, what you notice in the book of Acts is they were radically devoted to the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's that very word that's used in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves, and I want you to note what they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God. Most of the apostles' teaching has been recorded to us, for us. They devoted themselves to the teaching, to the fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved So we note the four things they were devoted to the word of God the apostles teaching They were devoted to fellowship and let me suggest it went far beyond coffee and crispy creams It was such a radical fellowship that they knew each other's needs in such a way that there was no need that wasn't met And they were radical enough to even sell their own property to help take care of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it was that community and that unity within community that brought about the favor of all people. And they became the salt and light that God has called us to be for Christ. And that was part of how the message went out not just in word, but in their deeds and their love for each other. They were radically devoted to each other. They were radically devoted to remembering Christ's death on the cross as they broke the bread, but their fellowship went house to house. They broke the bread sharing meals all the time. I don't know if you've thought about this, but the table is one of the places where Jesus was constantly doing ministry. The table was one of the places where the early church was constantly gathering around, sharing meals, remembering Christ's death, laughing together, learning together, in community together. When we share the word, we share it in community together. And they were devoted to prayer. And when I think of those four things they're devoted to, it begs the question, Mark, what are you devoted to? Friend, what are you devoted to? These are the things that Christ's followers are to be devoted to. These are the marks of the church. And this is my prayer for Door Creek Church that we would be such a church that loves God's Word and builds and centers our lives around God's Word. want to know, Lord, what, what, what does it mean today in my life, in my family, in my job, in this community? That we would be known as a church that loves each other. That, and if the only exposure you have to this church is right here in this hour, you're missing out and we're missing out. That's not church. Church is not about being a spectator. It's about being a participant with each other in each other's lives. So if you're not in a place of service and you're not in a place of community in a small group, you need to find that. We want to help you find that. I want this to be a place where people knock on our door and say, look, I don't know God, but I think you do. And will you talk to him for me? Pray for me. That they would know that Door Creek is a praying church. What are you devoted to? God, help us in these things. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Your devotion to us is seen in your son's death on the cross. Your devotion to us is seen in the gift of your spirit. And now we would devote ourselves afresh again to you and your purposes. May we go with the gospel, living it out in community here, reaching the world for your son. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.